0: Hello, welcome to The Naked Scientists. with me, Chris Smith, and with Hannah Critchlow.
1: This week, as the floodwaters are finally draining away across Britain, we take a look at the water management strategies, which could help us to tackle the £3.5 billion cost of flooding across Europe every year. Plus, in the news, the schoolboy who became the youngest person ever to achieve nuclear fusion and a new gene therapy breakthrough for treating HIV.
0: The Naked Scientist podcast is powered by UKfast.co.uk And before we kick off the news, this week's scientific teaser for you. As we're talking about flooding this week and climate change, if the North Pole melts owing to climate change, how much do you think it will cause sea level around the world to rise? What do you think the answer is? Have a guess. You can get in touch with us by tweeting at Naked Scientists, or you can email chris at scientists.com. Now this week, a 13-year-old British schoolboy has become the world's youngest person to carry out nuclear fusion in his classroom, no less. Jamie Edwards is a pupil at Penworth and Priory Academy in Lancashire.
2: So what I've done is I've recreated a process on Earth that happens on the sun on a daily basis, So, nuclear fusion. The process of smashing two hydrogen atoms together and making helium. What I do, I have this vacuum chamber. And all the air is pumped out of there by two vacuum pumps. Then I add a tiny, tiny bit of deuterium gas, heavy hydrogen, into the chamber. Then I apply about 30,000 volts via an electrode into the centre of this chamber. This rips apart the atom into its electrons and its positively charged nucleus this positively charged nucleus is accelerated towards the um, negatively charged electrode thousands and thousands of these deuterium nuclei are doing the same thing and eventually two of these are going to hit together with a tremendous amount of energy fused together then you got a helium atom But this helium atom is very, very energetic. Instead of releasing the energy as heat, it sends out a high-energy neutron. So you can just get a neutron detector, then you can prove that you've done nuclear fusion.
0: And the energetic neutron, is that
2: dangerous at all? Well, in large amounts, it could be very dangerous because it's like a very high-energy, fast neutron. But to prevent that, I've got, like, various safety mechanisms in place. Tanks of water, they act to slow down the neutron and reduce the energy. Then they're scattered around the room instead of all being directly thrown at me. How long did it take you to dream this up? I started in last April, and I was looking around for the local nuclear labs, like at Sellafield and some of the local universities, to see if they'd like sponsor me into doing a project like this, and most of the replies that I was getting were pretty negative. Really, they're all like, "Thanks, but uh, no thanks." So I thought maybe if I asked my school, and then maybe they could help me. So I did a um, Dragon's Den style pitch to Mr. Hurigan, my head teacher. He was like, "Yeah, sure, we'll give that a go." I think he was a bit scared at first, but
3: he was all right with it. My name's Jim Hurrigan. I'm head teacher at Penwith and Priory Academy. I had a sort of appointment in the diary from uh, the head of science, uh, who said she'd just like to come along with a young boy in year nine who had a proposal for me. He walked, young Jamie, and he had a, a PowerPoint which just said, "I want to build a fusion reactor at Priory. Will you support me?" And he talked me through the reasons why he wanted to do it, what was required. He would explained that he tried a couple of universities to support him financially. He wasn't getting anywhere. So he'd come to me as, almost as a last resort because he had this challenge. He wanted to become the youngest fusioneer in the world. And he had to achieve that before he came to his 14th birthday. And he explained about the young lad in America that had achieved this in 2008, I think it was. How much money did he want? He'd costed it, and he thought it would cost no more than £2,000.
0: So did you happen to have £2,000?
3: Yeah, there's always a little bit of money spared. There's always some accounts that don't quite fully spend up. So it wasn't an extortionate amount of money from my point of view.
0: And do you think, now that you've returned on that investment, are you glad you made it?
3: Oh, enormously so, yeah. Just the impact that we've had in terms of the recognition of the school, of Jamie, what he's achieved. And you can't put money on that. You can't sort of judge that and value that in terms of what we're achieving. But we have a, a motto at school about being locally respected, nationally recognised, and this is meeting that goal enormously. But that wasn't, that wasn't what we set out to do, but he's clearly having that as a spin-off.
0: And do you think this is going to translate into more children taking science at a higher level?
3: Very much so. We've already had, as soon as children, over the last sort of month or so, as they've seen Jamie's uh, project grow and as they've seen the actual reactor develop in one of the labs, we've had children coming to us already asking, can they get involved in other projects? There's a Google Science project and there's a few lads and a girl actually want to get involved in that. So already that sort of enthusiasm is already sort of dissipating into the rest of the school.
2: So, Jamie, what do you want to do next? In the short term... I want to go on it on to do more research with the fusion reactor that I've got at the minute. Looking into uses for these high energy neutrons. So they can be made into medical isotopes for uses for detecting cancer, things like that. And then maybe eventually trying to get nuclear fusion so efficient that it produces more energy out than I put in. I've already come up with some plans. Not gonna tell the world just yet.
0: Isn't that fantastic? That's the world's youngest fusioner, Jamie Edwards, who's from Penworth and Priory Academy in Lancashire. And before him, you heard his head teacher, Jim Hurrigan. Congratulations to both of them. What a wonderful story.
1: Absolutely brilliant. So something that's been grabbing my attention this week, the headlines smoking versus sausages. So you may have seen questions such as a meat, eggs, milk and cheese as deadly as smoking. Is it safe to substitute a cigarette for a sausage? And could a high protein Atkins diet lead to an early death? Be hard to light a sausage though, wouldn't it? Uh, I haven't tried. Yeah, I think it would be quite difficult. There's been a publication in the Journal of Cell Metabolism, a study by University of Southern California scientists, Volta Longo and his colleagues, and they surveyed the eating habits of more than 6,300 Americans aged over 50. And then they followed them up. 18 years later. And then they published this. They found out that those who had obtained 20% or more of their daily calories from protein were 75% more likely to have died during the 18 year follow-up. And they had specifically a fourfold increase in their rates of cancer and diabetes compared with individuals who obtained 10% of their calories from protein, so those that had a low protein diet. And according to Volta Longo, high protein intake is in fact posed as large a risk as tobacco. High
4: protein intake versus low protein of smoking versus not smoking, same increased risk for uh, dying of cancer in the following 18 years.
1: Quite a bold statement. The researchers also conducted a similar study in mice, getting the same results. And in both humans and mice, the dietary protein intake affected the levels of this growth hormone called IGF-1, which is also been linked to cancer susceptibility. So the authors suggest that IGF-1 could be used as a possible biomarker in the future to help predict people's risk of developing cancer and then steer them in the direction of a particular diet through the ages. Because surprisingly, the team also found that switching to a higher protein diet later in life, so after 65, actually does the opposite to health. So how your body reacts to high protein appears to be very age-dependent. One criticism of the study, however, is the sample size. So other scientists have been suggesting that there are too few subjects in this study to assess properly other factors like levels of exercise, for example, taken by the participants. And this could be affecting the results. So is a sausage as bad as a cigar? Sarah Williams is Health Information Officer at Cancer Research UK.
5: Protein definitely still has a place in a healthy balanced diet. It's perhaps a good idea if you eat a lot of it to cut back on red and processed meat, so things like beef, lamb, pork, but you broadly want to try and keep it simple, eat plenty of fibre, fruits and vegetables, and try and cut back on red and processed meat, salt and high calorie foods. What's really important to remember particularly if you're a smoker or you know know someone who's thinking of giving up smoking is that giving up smoking is the best thing that you can do for your health. It really is very difficult to overstate the harms of smoking. We do know that there are perhaps some small moderately increased risks of cancer connected with specifically red and processed meat but they're in no way in the same league as smoking.
0: I wonder if they'll consider e-cigarettes next maybe that's something we'll take a look at next week. Now, last week, parts of the UK witnessed spectacular displays of the northern lights. But what actually are the northern lights and what causes this phenomenon? Here is your quickfire science on the so-called aurora borealis with Ginny Smith and Harriet Johnson.
6: The northern lights appear when electrically charged particles travelling from the sun, known as the solar wind, disrupt the Earth's magnetic field and collide with oxygen and nitrogen atoms in the atmosphere. Having collided
7: with the charged solar particles, the gas atoms get excited and release energy, which makes
6: them glow. The different colours seen in the displays are determined by which atoms are hit and how much energy they have absorbed. Oxygen atoms release red light at high
7: altitudes and green light at lower altitudes. Because of the higher air pressure and relatively high amount of oxygen at lower altitudes, green auroras are the most commonly
6: seen. Because the flow of charged particles coming from the sun is directed by the Earth's magnetic field, displays are mostly seen in the polar regions. At
7: the North Pole, this is known as the Aurora Borealis, but at the South Pole, the event is called the Aurora Australis.
6: While particles can strike the atmosphere at any time, the northern lights are usually seen at night because they're not as bright as daylight.
7: Auroras have been observed on many other planets, like Jupiter and Saturn, and even on the surface of Jupiter's moons.
6: There are many myths surrounding the auroras. In medieval times, they were thought to be a sign of coming war or famine. Occasionally,
7: there are explosions on the Sun known as solar flares, which throw off huge numbers of charged particles. If these hit the Earth, they can distort the magnetic field and produce auroras much further from the poles.
6: The sun is currently at the height of its 11-year solar cycle when these flares are most common. A particularly large burst of solar wind last week led to the northern lights being visible all across the UK, even as far south as Jersey.
1: Ginny Smith and Harriet Johnson. And you can get hold of all of our Quickfire Science episodes as their own podcasts from our website at thenakedscientists.com forward slash quickfirescience.
0: This week, scientists announced that they have used gene therapy to modify the immune cells of patients with HIV, making them much harder for the virus to destroy, which should help to keep patients healthier for longer. Bruce Levine is from the University of Pennsylvania, and he helped to co-lead this study with us now. Hello, Bruce. Hello, how are you? Very well, thank you. So tell us what this gene therapy involved.
8: So this story really begins with a medical mystery at the beginnings of the HIV epidemic. And it was discovered that there was a very small percentage of people that were highly resistant to infection with HIV. And it turned out that 1% of Caucasians possess a receptor mutation that makes them resistant to HIV infection. So then you can begin to imagine, what if we can recreate this mutation in people and if they're already infected with HIV, we could remove their immune cells and modify them. Now, you may be wondering how we do this, and this began working with a company called Sangamo in California about a decade ago, who developed a type of molecular scissors, if you will, and this is a hybrid protein nuclease that can target this gene for CCR5, the receptor that HIV would otherwise use, induce a nick in DNA, and then that gene cannot be translated into protein and expressed on the cell surface.
0: So you were taking patients who currently are infected with HIV, taking out the kinds of white blood cells that HIV would normally attack or infect, and then subjecting them to this manipulation that effectively cuts a small piece of their DNA away, which removes from the cell a marker. This CCR5 marker that HIV would normally need to get into those white blood cells?
8: That's exactly right. This is a type of cellular engineering, and the patients on this study had their white blood cells collected in the laboratory that one normally uses for collecting stem cells for stem cell transplants. We get a bag of white cells, we take it to the lab, we add the DNA and coding for this protein nuclease to induce the mutation in this gene. Grow the cells up, freeze them, test them, and then they're reinfused. I think what's really remarkable about this technology is that it is so specific. It can target the one gene, in fact, the part of the one gene out of the 25,000 genes and the entire human genome. So you're able to
0: turn the cells that you manipulate into cells resembling someone who is hard to infect naturally with HIV. You then put the patient's own cells back into them. What happens to those cells when they go back into the body? Do they survive in the long term?
8: So we think they they will. We have a a limited uh, time of follow-up of a couple years for the first patients treated in this trial. And we can track the gene-edited cells compared to the other cells. And under uh, conditions of removing the patients from their antiretroviral drug therapy under supervision for 12 weeks, We can see a selective advantage for the gene edited cells that lack that receptor that HIV needs compared to the unmodified cells.
0: Oh, I see. So you take patients off their treatment and see what happens, how their cells fare when they're not on any HIV drugs. And these cells that you've modified appear to be less vulnerable to being attacked, which is what you would have expected to happen, isn't it?
8: That's exactly right. And over the past 10 years that we've been working with Sangamo, we did a whole series of laboratory experiments and animal experiments to show that we could do this in the laboratory. And now that we've been able to demonstrate that we can do it for the first time in humans, it really bears out the original hypothesis, which is that we could recreate this naturally occurring mutation and use it as a potential therapy for people already infected with HIV.
0: Why don't the viruses mutate to get around the adaptation that you've made?
8: Well, that's a good question, and it appears that this receptor, CCR5, is by far the predominant receptor that HIV uses. There are a couple other receptors that HIV can use, but it's very uncommon for these other types of HIV to be transmitted. Now, the next part of the strategy, then, is to look at knocking out these other receptors, and we have laboratory studies underway to do that.
0: And how would you actually use this sort of approach? Would you take patients who have HIV, take some blood cells from them, give them this sort of treatment, and then every time the patient's own cells drop a bit because the virus is attacking the cells and making them disappear, you would, what, infuse some more?
8: Well, we may only have a need to do a few infusions or maybe even one infusion because these gene-edited cells do have the selective advantage. Now, we need to do a lot more work and more patients to determine that, but we have data from other gene therapy studies that we've done in HIV that modified cells can persist for years, and we're hoping that that would be the case with this type of approach as well. Is it safe? It appears to be safe so far, uh, but again, this is a first-in-human study. We published the results of 12 patients. There are other ongoing clinical trials but still a small number of patients. I think in the long term we have to see what the data will show, but in this early studies it does appear to be safe and feasible.
0: Bruce, thank you very much. That's Bruce Levine. He's from the University of Pennsylvania School of Medicine and he published that study just the other day in the New England Journal of Medicine.
1: Marine science now. After hatching on beaches, baby sea turtles toddle off into the sea, not to be seen again until years later when they return dinner plate-sized to coastal areas. Now scientists have used solar-powered satellite tags to track where these sea turtles go. Harriet Johnson spoke to the University of Central Florida's Kate Mansfield.
9: Historically it's been a really difficult problem because... The available technology just hasn't been small enough or light enough. Because we were able to use solar-powered tags, it reduced the need for really large batteries that are often sometimes as big as the turtles. This allowed us to use a much smaller tag. What we ended up having to do, too, is also address an issue of the turtle's growth. Uh, These little guys are growing fairly quickly. What stays on a larger turtle for up to four years, these little guys would shed it within one to two weeks. So we had to come up with something that was a little bit different. We made the connection with keratin, which is the material that our fingernails are made of, as well as turtle shells. My collaborator is known for her pedicures and realized that we should give her manicurist a call. Her manicurist recommended an acrylic base coat, and it worked really well. So we created a flexible attachment that would allow for about 2 to 5 centimeters of shell growth.
7: Publishing in the Proceedings of the Royal Society Bee Journal, they were able to monitor the behavior, whereabouts, and temperature of 17 loggerhead turtles from when they began their ocean adventure for up to 220 days. So where did they go?
9: Initially, they entered into the Gulf Stream, which is a fast-moving current off the east coast of the U.S. It's part of uh, the North Atlantic subtropical gyre, uh, which is a current system that rings the whole northern um, Atlantic And what was originally thought and understood was that the turtles would just remain in the outer currents of this big gyre ring. But our study showed that a number of the turtles ended up uh, entering into the centre of the gyre, uh, into the areas associated with the Sargasso Sea. So that was something that was a little different than expected.
1: Kate Mansfield at the University of Central Florida speaking with Harriet Johnson. Now this year so
0: far and last year we've seen periods of extreme weather all over the globe, including flooding across Britain, and we'll be discussing more about that in the rest of the show. And it was appropriate then that University of Illinois scientist Don Wibbles, who won the 2007 Nobel Peace Prize alongside Al Gore for his work on global warming, was in Cambridge this week to talk to some collaborators about the subject of climate.
10: The climate is changing worldwide, climate being the long-term variations in weather, of course, but it's much more than that the fact that that changes are occurring because of human activities are becoming clearer and clearer over time. We now are beginning to even talk about that dangerous climate change isn't just going to happen in the future, it's happening now. Just summarize for us what the big changes are. What are we seeing and where? So we're seeing overall long-term changes in temperature. We're seeing um, relatively small changes overall in precipitation, some places getting drier, some places getting wetter. But it's much more than that. It's this concern about severe weather where we're seeing much more concern about heat waves, less cold waves overall. We're also seeing more precipitation coming as much larger events than in the past.
0: What do we think the drivers of this are?
10: The analysis are very clear that you cannot explain these long-term changes we're seeing as being due to natural causes. The only thing that really is able to explain the observed changes is the fact that because of our burning of fossil fuels, other human-induced changes in our planet, that we're increasing the amount of carbon dioxide, the amount of methane, the amount of some other key gases. And those gases so happen are very important to life on Earth in the first place because without those gases... We wouldn't have life here as we know it. This would be a frozen planet. So having those greenhouse gases is really important. The problem is, is because of human activities, is we're increasing the amount of those greenhouse gases substantially. The amount of carbon dioxide, for example, has increased from about 280 parts per million to over 400 parts per million, and it continues to increase, and that's driving changes. And we haven't seen levels of carbon dioxide in the Earth's atmosphere of that size for over 2 million years. Do we know
0: what the weather was like 2 million years ago, when it was that high?
10: We don't totally know what the weather was, but we do know that it was a much, much warmer climate on this planet at that time than it is now. Places like Antarctica and Greenland were without ice, much higher sea levels. You know, we may not be worried about what's going to happen over the next several thousand years, but we certainly should be concerned about what's going to happen over this century when these changes in climate are going to be affecting our children and our grandchildren.
0: Now, obviously, two million years ago, there were early pre-humans around, but they certainly weren't emitting CO2 the way that we modern humans are now so where did the co2 that was in the atmosphere and at high level then come from
10: Yeah, I thought those high levels of carbon dioxide actually came from outgassing from uh, very large volcanoes. Current volcanic eruptions have very small effects on the amount of CO2 in the atmosphere, much, much less than human amount, and really do not contribute to the increase that we're seeing now.
0: And what about the severe weather manifestations that we're now seeing, potentially linked to this? Why do we get more severe weather when the CO2 in the atmosphere rises?
10: Some aspects of it we understand pretty well. We know, for example, as the temperature is increasing, that a warmer atmosphere can hold more water vapor. And so that additional water vapor is then available for precipitation. In addition, there's just more overall energy in the entire Earth system because of this uh, increases in these gases. It's just overall trapping more energy into the Earth. So we expect things like more precipitation coming as larger events. But also analyses are tending to show that Some very large events like hurricanes are likely to be more intense in the future. Right now we can't say much about the number, but the intensity is likely to be larger.
0: What about timescale? When should I consider moving further from the coast?
10: Well, the big concern of the coast particularly are, are going to be the increase in sea level and storm surge. The projections over this century are something like... 20 to 80 centimetres by IPCC. I think in the National Climate Assessment, we were a little bit more generous and said it could be as much as a metre. You know, none of that's going to happen soon, but we are seeing an acceleration in the, the rate of sea level rise. You know, I think you uh, clearly have several decades available to you to, to still live near the coast, but after the next few decades or so, you may get concerned.
0: Climate change expert and Nobel Prize winner Don Ribbles.
1: And if you'd like to follow up on the stories we've just been discussing, there are references and transcripts for these news items on our website, which is at nakedscientists.com slash news.
0: And don't forget our quiz this week. We're asking you if the ice at the North Pole melted, owing to the kind of climate change that Don Wibbles was discussing, then what would it do to global sea levels? If you have any thoughts or you have any comments, questions or feedback for us here on the programme, tweet at Scientists or you can email chris at scientists.com. Now, appropriately enough, onto our main topic of the week, and that's flooding. And after spending last summer in wellies, the UK has once again been the perfect habitat for ducks right across the start of this year. Well, we'll now look at how water management strategies could help future flooding later on in this programme. But before that, around Cambridge, the Fens area, of course, used to be entirely underwater back when it was marshland. And Greyer Jackson investigated how the water was first drained away All those centuries ago.
11: Through much of this year so far, Britain has been facing a flood crisis. Some parts of the country have seen more than half a metre of rain this winter, 36% more than normal, and as a result, thousands of homes have been flooded. But flooding and flood management isn't just a recent phenomenon. In fact, the UK has a long history of water management, with one of its bravest endeavours being the reclaiming of the fens. In 1631, they drafted in Dutch engineer Cornelius Vermoyden, and the draining began. Today, the canals are sandwiched with grassy embankments protecting the lowlands and its cows from flooding. But I was keen to know what the area would have been like before all this engineering began. Keith Hind is a local historian, and he painted me a picture.
12: In the summer, it was what you would call grazing land. But in, in a bad winter, it would have been very much like the Somerset Levels are now, covered with water.
11: So what, what exactly did they do to drain the fens in the early 1600s then?
12: They had this man called Vermoyden, a Dutchman. His main thing in the South Level was to construct two major channels, or rivers, through the middle of the fen. And in between, he created a washland so that when you got flooding they simply filled the washland. Then, at the end of the two rivers, which were 20 miles long, he installed Denver Sluice to control the water flowing out to the sea at King's Lynn. And in that way, he mostly preserved uh, the the rest of the fen from flooding.
11: But, as the peat shrank and the level of the land fell, it ended up lying lower than the rivers, so the water had to be pumped up and into the river, initially using wind-powered pumps, and then, with the advent of the industrial revolution, steam. The heat generated from coal was used to create steam at high enough pressures to power a water wheel, which could remove 120 tonnes of water every minute. Sadly, most of these steamers have since been decommissioned. There is, however, one complete relic left. Stretham Old Engine. Built in 1831, the yellow-bricked building and its 75-foot chimney sit a few feet away from the canal. Inside is a beam engine, complete with three huge boilers. Malcolm Hensby is a trustee here, and he took me
13: for a tour. So James Watt invented the beam, which is at the top of the engine, and it turns the vertical power created by the piston going up and down, to a circular motion, which turns a flywheel, which turns the scoop wheel, which lifts the water from the low-lying land to the river. Although the, uh, the, the, it last worked under steam in 1941, uh, we have more recently in, in installed an electric motor, which turns the machinery at a very slow speed.
11: So how big an are area exactly would this place have been draining?
13: About 6,000 acres.
11: What sort of operation would that have been?
13: Uh, there was a permanent staff of two, and I think the longest period it worked was six weeks continuously. Uh, during that time, the engine would use about five tonnes of coal per 24-hour operation.
11: So what happens today then?
13: It, it's redundant and has been since uh, 1947, when the engine was taken out of commission and replaced by the system today, which is a series of remotely controlled electric pumps, all controlled from Denver, um, and that uh, controls the level of the uh, water in the river system throughout the the entire region.
11: The Denver complex is one of the largest sluice systems in the UK. These five concrete barriers hold back the tides from drowning much of Cambridgeshire and Suffolk, as well as quickly discharging waters out to sea in periods of heavy rain. The head sluice is made up of four concrete segments, the big eye, a navigation gate for large vessels, and the little eyes, which are three smaller, but by no means small, sluices.
14: Dan Pollard, I'm the superintendent for the Environment Agency at the Denver Complex.
11: How exactly does the Denver Sluice system operate?
14: It works um, by drawing floodwaters down from Ely and Cambridge. And so we have to change the gradient on the levels here. So it draws down huge quantities. We've got the head sluice that we stand next to. We can put up to 120 tonnes of water a second.
6: Why do you
11: need a sluice?
14: So during the summer months, we use the sluice to actually control water to make sure there's enough water in there for the boats so the sluices is one for getting rid of flood water but two for actually maintaining river levels under low flow conditions too.
11: There's also been a bit of press about dredging. Should we be doing more of it?
14: We have had a report done uh, not so many years ago called the Tidal River Strategy um, and it did say that dredging in this area is not sustainable purely because of the cost.
11: How might our rivers be managed in the future then?
14: I think there's got to be, there's got, it's, it's got to be what the situation dictates. Each case has got to be looked at individually, whether we pour more concrete and more stone into an area or whether we have some sort of soft defence and some sort of strategic retreat.
0: Dan Pollard, entering that report by Greg Jackson. And before him, we heard from local historian Keith Hind and Malcolm Hensby from the Streatham Old Engine Trust. I was asking you earlier in the programme what would happen to sea levels if the North Pole were to melt Owing to global warming, keep your answers coming in. Tweet at Naked Scientists. You can also email Chris at thenakedscientists.com. We've heard from Bavish, who is on the right lines, as is Ed Wilson. Mark Hampson says he thinks there'll be a 60% rise in ocean level, but he'd probably be okay. He thinks because he does live in a block of flats.
1: So we heard earlier that waters might have initially been drained off the fens centuries ago but across the east of England we're still trying to keep the water out. 2014 started with major flooding across England and Wales and while full assessment of the damage isn't quite in, at the last count almost 6,000 properties were flooded and insurers estimate the damage exceeds £203 million. We're joined by Sheila Abrams who lives in Debden, just south of Cambridgeshire and she was one of those affected by the Floods earlier this year. Hello, Sheila. Hello, hello. Hello, and you experienced flooding in your home. The waters have now gone down, I believe. But what damage are you left with?
15: It's quite a lot of damage, actually, far more than I would have thought. The kitchens had to be stripped out, and tomorrow, month after the flood, the builders coming in to take the floors out and the plaster off up to a meter, and all the insulation out, so that we can then dry out where it was flooded before we can start making it good and putting it all back in
1: again. So it's causing quite a big inconvenience and reshuffle in your house, I imagine. Um, were you aware that your house was at risk of flooding when you bought it?
15: Not at all. We've, and we've lived here since 2000 and we've never had any sign at all that it might flood. The ditch that runs round our property is massive. It's about 12 foot deep. And and in fact that ditch wasn't full of water but the water leading into it had overflown and, and sort of come out of the ditch system if you like and that had never happened before and it just flowed into our property.
1: So it was a big surprise when you got home and saw the damage then. Is there anything that you think you can do to help prevent this happening in the future?
15: There are a few things. It would be nice to have a larger culvert put in so where the bottleneck was where it started coming out of the system i don't know whether that will be feasible but i think the fact that we're aware that it could happen now will wake us up cuz we had no idea where all this water was coming from really and we we will raise up some levels to try and stop the water ever doing that again i'm not terribly confident that it won't happen again but you know we'll do our best to to keep it out i don't want it happening again
1: Okay, thank you very much, Sheila, for sharing your experiences with us. You're
0: listening to The Naked Scientist with Hannah Critchlow and with me, Chris Smith. Don't forget, we're asking you what would happen if the North Pole were to melt, perhaps through climate change, what would it do to global sea levels? If you have any thoughts, or indeed any other questions, comments or feedback for the programme, you can email chris at the scientist.com or tweet at Naked Scientists. This week
1: we're ringing out the facts about water management. So I live on a houseboat on the River Cam myself, and I'm only too aware of how much the water level has been rising and falling over the recent weeks. And with us to explain how we manage river levels and how we can stop more rivers from bursting their banks in the future is Jenny Mant from the River Restoration Centre, which is based at Cranfield university hello there jenny hello so as i said as we've been having heavy storms the water level has been changing so much that my boat's been bobbing up and down the river's been bursting its banks at very frequent intervals and there's been some days when i haven't been able to even board my boat you know i've been trying to don the wellies and kind of try and get onto my boat hauling myself up with ropes but it hasn't been possible what's been going on to cause this much change with the river levels
5: Well, I think it has been extremely unusual conditions. And in fact, there's estimates now that we haven't seen something like this for the last 200, 250 years. And so there has been an extreme amount of rain in the whole system. And to some extent, obviously, rivers and their floodplains are there to manage the rivers. And we just experience a lot of rain. The groundwaters are full with water. And there's really nowhere for the water to go.
1: We were hearing earlier from the people that work with the Environment agency, so the national body that looks after our river waves, that dredging just isn't a sustainable option so removing that silt deposition at the bottom of the river in order to increase the capacity of the river, that could be possibly an option to help prevent against um, river flooding but it's not financially sustainable, is that true? What's the research on that? The
5: the issue with dredging is if you, for example, equate it to going to the doctors and if you're dredging you're almost fixing the symptoms and you're not really looking at the cause Mm. And it is extremely expensive because if you dredge a river, you are going to have to keep on dredging it because as soon as you stop dredging, the fine material will come in to the river that comes from the areas around within the catchment and that will then deposit back within the river. So really, I think what um, Dan was saying earlier was that you have to think about each catchment as an individual catchment and think about the management of that catchment both within the urban and the rural areas, to try and stop the sediment getting into the river in the first place. And that way you will then not need to dredge the rivers to try and think about... The natural way that a river would would manage itself, if you like.
1: And you mentioned the causes earlier, so what could be an example of these causes? I've read in the papers recently that intensive maize farming, for example, right up against the riverbank, that's not a good thing to help with this flooding issue.
5: No, it's not the maize itself, but it's the way that it's actually managed within the rural areas. So things like not ploughing right up to the edge of the river is very important because that stops a massive amount of sediment getting into the river and also simple things like thinking about where the, your gated access is and if it's at the bottom of the slope at the bottom of a river then that immediately creates a pathway for sediment to go straight in to the river so it's thinking about the whole of the catchment management it's not just the rural areas though at all, mm-hmm. you need to think about the urban areas but I think you're talking about that later on in the programme Yeah.
1: So just in the houses nearby my boat on the river there's lots of floodgates against people's front gardens to try and protect the water seeping into the houses and, and again causing lots of damage, as, as Sheila was alluding to mm. earlier. So is this something that we're going to increasingly have to start putting in in our houses around the UK and, and in these these areas that traditionally we didn't think were actually in danger of mm. becoming
5: flooded? Mm. Well, quite possibly, or at least trying to set back a bit from the river as well. So you're giving the river more space to enable it to w- manage the floods. But again, as we heard earlier, with climate change coming into the scenario, we're in a situation where we probably may be seeing more events of this kind of nature in the future. So again, it goes back to trying to think about how we manage the whole catchment. And part of that may be that we have to think about how we deal with our houses being right next to the river.
1: That's great. Thank you very much to Jenny Mant from the River Restoration Centre. And she's based at Cranfield University.
0: Thank you, Hannah. I can't get over how prescient it was of you to buy a boat in the first place. You must be psychic. You must have foreseen this happening.
1: Yeah, I mean, it was quite awkward getting in and out of the boat but actually my boat was floating and I I didn't suffer any damage from the flooding so actually I count myself very lucky. You're listening to The Naked Scientist
0: with Chris Smith that's me and with Hannah Critchlow we're talking about flooding and ironically we've managed to take the day which Britain has enjoyed its highest temperatures and best weather all year to discuss the topic that's hardly been off the news and off the headlines and off the front pages of the newspapers all year. Thankfully things are subsiding but of course that doesn't mean it couldn't happen again which is why we're looking at this issue. And we've heard all about the floods associated with rivers and river overflows, but what about in urban areas? Nigel Wright is from Leeds University, where he actually is also part of something called the Blue Green Cities Project, and he's with us now. Hello, Nigel. Hi, good afternoon. So tell us a bit about what sorts of threats there are facing big urban centres, because most of the reports we've heard have been focusing on the Somerset levels and our new inland ocean called Somerset.
16: Well, with the river flooding, then you're looking at rain that's fallen upstream, gone into the river, and then threatens the city. But, of course, the rainfall occurs in the city as well, and with all the surfaces we're putting in, impermeable surfaces that the rain can't pass through, that rain that falls in the city has to go somewhere, and that's what creates a problem with what we call surface water flooding in urban areas.
0: So this would be the point that, when rain used to fall down and hit the ground, it would soak into the ground like a giant sponge and there would be a, a latency between the rain arriving on the surface and then making its way into the river. Whereas if I come along and put roads and concrete and surface coatings on the ground, then that water doesn't soak in, it's going to run off into a drain and that drain is very quickly going to transmit it to a river.
16: Well, that, and then we designed the drains for you know, a certain level of rainfall but with more of these car parks for supermarkets, people covering up their front gardens. That increases the amount of water going into the pipes and the pipes reach capacity and then the water can't get into the drainage system and just spreads out around people's houses.
0: What does it actually do to ground water, though, when people do build, say, a new big housing development on a piece of countryside which was previously just open land? What happens to the water table around the development?
16: Well, if that water is no longer seeping into the ground then the water table is likely to um, to drop to an extent.
0: So does this mean that the buildings are all going to sink and so therefore that that in fact the land is going to drop a bit and therefore they might be at more risk of flooding later?
16: I don't think that's not a problem in most of the UK though I know it's a problem where I used to live in the Netherlands and therefore it may well be a problem you know in the area where you are particularly if you have peat if that starts to dry out then the land surface can sink so yes that's another problem with covering over the uh, surfaces, which is why we're actually quite keen for people to put down surfaces that the water can actually seep through.
0: Some cities do do this, though. I mean, I've lived in Australia in the past, and walking around in Sydney, you will see verges adjacent to pavements completely grassed. And this means that when the rain hits the pavement, and boy, does it hit the pavement sometimes, it can run to the side of the pavement and it then soaks in. Is this the sort of thing you're getting at?
16: Yes, that's it. And and there are places in the UK and other countries that that already do this. And uh, one thing that was done a few years ago by some councils is to say that if you want to cover your front garden to put your car on, if you do it with an impermeable surface, you need planning permission. But if you fit a permeable surface, then you don't. So obviously people will go for the permeable surface. And it's surprising across a large city how much difference that can make.
0: Isn't it a bit late For most of our cities though, have we not now got a problem that we've made and now we've got to try and undo it rather than just regulate people making new developments?
16: We certainly need to work with the new developments and legislation was put in place in 2010 that's yet to be implemented to say that all new developments must use these what we call sustainable systems where the surfaces are more permeable and the water's kept at source. But for the other areas, they're always being renewed. We're renewing road surfaces, we're looking at pavements all the time and we can look at how we can replace them in a way that holds the water back at the source.
0: What can you tell us about the whole point of the Blue Green City project? How did it get started and what's it trying to do?
16: Well, what we're looking at there is the sort of things we might do to decrease the risk of flooding in urban areas, but also saying that a lot of those have other benefits beyond flooding. So if we're introducing more grass and green spaces within cities, There might actually be multiple benefits, so we could do these things for many reasons. And we're trying to work out how we can quantify these new methods, because, of course, developers are keen not to spend a lot more money. They like to stick to what they've done before. So what we want to do is, is try and demonstrate and give them some confidence that these measures can work.
0: Have you got some numbers you can put on this yet? Can you actually quantify this would be the direct benefit to the city, for instance?
16: That's what we're working towards. We want to get those numbers, because... In all these debates on flooding, people have many different ideas as to what we could do to improve the situation, but what we want to come up with with is some hard figures. As you heard earlier, the question of should we dredge or should we store water in the upland? These are all good ideas, but what we're trying to do is is put some numbers on that. So uh, we have colleagues at Cambridge University in particular who are working on uh, calculating the economic benefits of these measures.
0: Rather than just reinventing the wheel here in Britain, what can we learn from looking at other countries and and how they solve this problem? You mentioned the Netherlands earlier. I mean, they they must know more about this than anybody.
16: They do, though. They particularly focus on flooding from the coast, from the sea, uh, and flooding from rivers. And and they do have flooding in urban areas with problems you get with heavy rainfall. But in most Dutch cities in the residential areas, there's no drainage from the street into the drainage system. All the streets are made with block paving, So the water seeps down between the blocks and goes into the sand underneath and will eventually go into the drainage system, but it takes a lot longer. And in my house, when I lived there, there was no drainage in the garden. So if it rained heavily, I could have five, centimetres of rain collecting in the garden. But it didn't affect the house, and eventually that would seep out into the system. So it's not really about storing the water at source. It's just holding it back for a bit that means you don't get the peak that will flood the streets and people's basements.
0: That's presumably the same aspiration when people plant these green roofs, where you have a big thick layer of of various plant species growing on a roof, which acts like a, a big sponge when the rain falls.
16: Yep, that's it. Green roofs, water butts, even different sorts of plants in the garden. There was a discussion earlier about how farming practices can increase runoff, and we can even help a bit by making sure there's a lot of vegetation cover in our gardens that will hold the water at source.
0: Doesn't sound like it might go down well with all planners, though, Nigel.
16: No, it it doesn't. But if we start this process and we start to do some of it, then it makes a difference. And if, as I was explaining with the people covering their front gardens, that can make a big difference if you get 20 or 30% of the people adopting these measures.
0: Sounds like a good strategy. Nigel, thank you very much. That's Nigel Wright. He is from the University of Leeds. You're listening to The Naked Scientist with Chris Smith and with Hannah Critchlow. And so far this week we've been discussing water management and we've heard how we can limit floods in rivers and urban environments. But as Nobel Prize winning scientist Don Webbles explained at the beginning of the show, we are expecting more extreme weather events as time goes on. So maybe we should start thinking about bigger projects that can tackle flooding in the future. Roger Faulkner from Cardiff University, he's with us to talk over a few ideas. First of all, Roger, and welcome to the programme, by the way, what do you think of what Nigel was suggesting about the way we, we just retrofit our cities and also encourage people to just have more gardens instead of tarmac?
4: Well, in principle, that's fine, and I would support that. But if you look at the Somerset Levels area, the groundwater was pretty saturated anyway, and I know from living in Cambridge some years ago, the same occurs in the Cambridge area as well. So when you have big floods, like we've had recently, the groundwater is usually at ground level. And in that case, changing the ground conditions wouldn't make a lot of difference.
0: So the water goes in and it's got nowhere to go, so it just runs straight well, off anyway. exactly
4: what happened in, in the Somerset Levels area.
0: Indeed. So instead, what might we be able to do? What sorts of strategies could we explore?
4: One of the arguments is we shouldn't build houses on floodplains. But if you look at almost every major city near the coast, London, Cardiff and so on, most of the city is on a floodplain. So you have no choice but to build on the floodplain in the future. You wouldn't build any houses in York, Cardiff, London, and a long list of other cities if you adopted the policy, you never build anything on the floodplain. But I think we can look more at how we build our houses. If you look at houses in the States, for example, it's quite common for the garage to be on the ground floor. But most of the living area is on what we would call here the first floor and possibly a floor above. And I would be perfectly happy to buy a house which had a garage on the ground floor and a playroom for the kids, for example, but no no real power of any significance there. And then on the first floor, have my living area. And then at least if my house was flooded, the garage would be messed up, but the living area, and probably then the second floor would be fine. So I think this is a solution we should look more to.
0: I mean, Good for for new development, obviously something to bear in mind. What about actually things we could do to try to mitigate with the housing stock we currently have? What about, for instance, trying to tether the way in which uh, we handle flooding and turn it to our advantage so we can use the water that we accumulate in other ways? Because water's a pretty precious resource these days, isn't it?
4: Well, one of the things that's been proposed at the moment, and many proposals on the table, to build large coastly attached lagoons to generate power. So these are marine renewable energy projects. They are not for flooding as such. But if you look at many of the attractive sites, such as, for example, Bridgewater Bay and the North Wales coast, these are communities very prone to flood problems. If we were to build large, coastly attached impoundments similar to barrages, around these embayments, we would have a huge opportunity to alleviate a lot of the flood risk. The problem in the Somerset levels, and the reason why dredging is not a solution in my view, as things stand at the moment, is basically the flow in the river is governed by the water surface slope. And in the Somerset levels, you almost have flat land, similar to Cambridge. and Therefore, the flow in the canals and the rivers and so forth is extremely low velocity. And dredging doesn't really change that. I live in Cardiff and we have a bay here. If you dredge Cardiff Bay, it wouldn't make any difference to the flow through the bay. So the lagoons
0: to, might be Well, might if you we want to increase answer.
4: the water surface slope, we either want to raise the land, that's a non-starter, or we drop the sea. And if you build a lagoon, close off the sea from the land, use it most of the time to generate power, and then when you need it for flood mitigation, you would not generate power
1: on the incoming tide.
0: Thank you very much for your time. Roger Faulkner, who is from Cardiff University.
1: And finally, closing the show, I've been delving into our question of the week. This week, we light up our brains with a question that Hazel Barraclough wrote in with.
7: Hi there. Can you tell me why it is that when lightning strikes the sea or any other large body of water, it doesn't kill the fish? Many thanks. So why
1: don't we see floating electrocuted fish following a thunderstorm. Well, first up, some facts. Lightning is a massive electrostatic discharge, the sudden flow of electricity. During a thunderstorm, regions of positive or negative charge build up, within or between clouds and the surface of the planet. This charge is eventually discharged by a lightning flash or strike, carrying a whopping 30,000 amperes of current and transferring 500 megajoules of energy. This is the equivalent energy Energy striking in a split second as a colossal 1400 100 watt bulbs running for an hour so since humans are concerned about being frazzled when lightning strikes on land aren't fish worried in water over to the expert
17: my name is john jensenius i'm a lightning safety specialist with the national weather service in the united states Really when you get down to it you have to look at what happens when a thunderstorm develops and what happens just prior to the lightning strike there's a charge that builds up in the cloud and there's a opposite charge that builds up on the surface of the water so when lightning flash occurs the discharge discharges along the surface so the effect of the lightning is pretty much contained to the surface of the water And, in fact, the fish that are swimming below the water are safe. They're completely unaffected by the lightning.
1: And listener Eric Sandberg agrees. So he says that the lightning electricity will mostly stay on the surface of the water. He also says that he thinks it's to do with the fact that the water is such a good conductor and that electricity will quickly be dispersed or spread out to the surrounding water close to the surface.
17: Well, uh, water is a good conductor of electricity, and that's one of the reasons that the charges can move to the surface of the water And it is true when lightning strikes the water, that discharge literally spreads out along the surface. And of course, with the fish below, they should be safe.
1: So divers, as well as fish, if you are in the water during a thunderstorm, then take cover deep down below the surface to avoid being shocked. Thanks to Hazel Barraclough for electrifying our minds with the question, John Jensenius for illuminating the answer, and all those who posed their thoughts on Facebook. We next jump up and down. Hi, my name is Binesh and I live in Harlow. My question is,
12: if the Earth is spinning, why do we need to travel in an aeroplane? Could we not arrive at our destination if we stay static in the sky and land when we spot our destination as the Earth spins by?
1: So why don't we use the Earth's natural spin to help long-distance travel? What do you think? Hannah Critchlow. And if you
0: can help, then please do send your thoughts, comments and questions to chris at com. You can also tweet at Naked Scientists, or you can join us on our website, nakedscientist.com forward slash forum, where there is a dedicated question of the week debate. That's it for this week. We'd better give you the answer to our quiz question. We asked you, what would happen if the North Pole were to suddenly melt? What would it do to global sea levels? The answer is absolutely nothing, because just like your ice cubes floating in your drink, which if they melt won't make the glass overflow, the ice is already displacing its own weight in water, so when it melts it just becomes water occupying exactly the same volume as it's currently displacing, so there'll be no net change in sea level. Thank you very much to our guests this week, Don Wibbles, Jenny Mant, Nigel Wright and Roger Faulkner. The production was by Kate Lamble. Thank you very much to Hannah Critchlow for joining me. Next time, we'll have a special show from the Cambridge Science Festival, including answers to your science questions. The Naked Scientist comes to you from Cambridge University. We're supported by the Wellcome Trust, the STFC and the EPSRC. My name's Chris Smith. Thanks for listening and goodbye.